Welcome to Big Data Small Talk, where we take the vast and complex world of data and break it down to bit-sized accessible conversations. Each episode is featured by leaders in the fields of data science, AI, or data engineering, as we explore the latest trends, challenges, and opportunities around data. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get started. Welcome to another Big Data Small Talk. In this episode, we're going to go over how to solve the complexity of putting and keeping machine learning models in production. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Hi, how are hey, you? Hey. Great. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, everyone. Okay, so uh, let's get started. And uh, just a quick intro myself. I am Sabrina, I'm the developer advocate at Shakuto. Um, an intro on Shakuto, which is a platform to build and abstract the complexity of building, deploying, and maintaining data models especially if you're working with large amounts of data, machine learning or deep learning models, blockchain data, and basically everything you need to take your model from scratch to production. Uh, but most importantly, uh, do it all in an easy and efficient way. So it's a platform built by data scientists who felt the pain and challenges of the data science workflow and created this tool to abstract it all away, which has very much to do with the topic that we're talking about here today. So welcome everyone to our discussion on moving data science to production. Thank you for tuning in here with us, everyone in the audience. Um, and we have an exciting lineup of speakers here today who will share the, their insights and experience on this important topic. As we all know, data science has the potential to transform organizations and drive business value, but making the transition from research to production is not always easy. And that's why we're here today, to learn from the experts and gain a better understanding of how to overcome these challenges and make data science a valuable and integral part of our organization. So let's get started and dive into the world of data science and production. One of the things that make our panel of speakers so interesting today is the diversity of their backgrounds and expertise. So Paul has a background in reinforcement learning. Uh, Tawanda has a background in big data. Mickey has a background in MLOps, Shannon has a background in bioinformatics, and Christine has a background in AI research. And each one of these speakers brings a unique perspective and experience to the discussion, and this diversity of backgrounds will help to ensure that we have a rich and well-rounded conversation. And that way we can gain a more comprehensive understanding of the challenges and opportunities of the topic that we have here today. So thank you so much, everyone. I'm very excited and a quick intro to the speakers here uh, to everyone in the audience to get acquainted with them. Uh, starting with Paul, who has an extensive experience in reinforcement learning. Paul has worked on a variety of projects in this field. He's the author of the hands-on reinforcement learning course and also shares weekly real-world <laughs> data science and machine learning content. But really every day you can find him posting a lot of interesting threads about this stuff, interesting posts, and we're excited to hear more about your work on this topic that we have here today. Paul, um, do you want to tell us a bit more about yourself? Okay, let's go to the next one. I think um, Paul is maybe having some issues. Next up, is we have is Tawanda, who is an expert in the field of big data and has an experience with, learning, with actually uh, working with large data sets and has a deep understanding of challenges of working with big data. And besides that, he's super funny here on Twitter, always posting memes and lining up our day 
we're looking forward to hearing more about your experience, so Wanda, and insights on the topic and maybe some jokes as well. So how are you? I'm all right, Sabrina. Thanks for introducing me. Yeah, my name is Chawan Tanyawi, and I'm based in Harare, Zimbabwe, and I'm um, into big data analytics, and I also work as a software engineer, uh, mainly C-sharp, um, ASP.NET. So yeah, looking forward to, to hearing uh, different thoughts from everyone. Yeah, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, next up, we have Miki, who is a leader in the field of MLOps. Miki has worked with organizations of all sizes and helped them implement effective machine learning and has a wealth of experience and knowledge in this area. She's also a content creator, has a YouTube channel where she talks more about MLOps and ML engineering. I'm very excited to hear more about your work, Miki. And anything you want to add here? How are you feeling today? Hey, everyone. My name is uh, Mickey. I'm excited to be with here, uh, here, be here today with y'all. Oh, my goodness. I haven't had my first cup of coffee yet. Um, yeah, so just my background, uh, you know, when I, I went to college for uh, anthropology and economics, so um, basically I had to self-teach myself over the years, uh, programming, data science, machine learning, and then eventually machine learning, engineering, and MLOps. Um, so I spent some time as an analyst, as a data scientist, as an MLOps engineer, uh, so, you know, I'm always happy to take questions on, like, what does that transition look like? Um, you know, what are the uh, challenges people face when they're trying to upskill? And I just want to say that, you know, if you're trying to make that transition yourself, it is, like, totally possible. You know, like, I've done it. I'm, like, not the smartest person in the room. Uh, you know, but with some hard work, good strategy, uh, you know, it's, it's very possible for people to pivot into this space. So feel free to hit me up on Twitter or LinkedIn if you ever have questions. Amazing, yeah. So um, if you're in the audience and you're looking for someone with large expertise in the subject, Mickey is just making himself available to help you out. Uh, thank you so much, Mickey, for doing that. And next up here we have uh, Chanin, who is a pioneer on the field of bioinformatics. So he has worked on a wide range of projects that have applied data science techniques to the analysis of biological data and also has an amazing YouTube channel where he talks about data science, machine learning, bioinformatics. Um, so yeah, how are you feeling today, Chen? And thank you for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure um, being here. And yeah, thanks for the very kind introduction. Um, yeah, so maybe if we have time, like a short background about myself. Um, so like I have an undergraduate in biology. And uh, similar to Mickey, I've also self-taught myself uh, coding. Um, I try like, I think for the fourth time, um, first time I tried with C and, you know, like it, it didn't really click with me. I then tried Java and also not really effective and eventually got to Python and everything started to come into place. Um, and yeah, that, that was like probably 10 or so years ago. Um, and yeah, I'm also um, transitioned outside of academia, outside of bioinformatics and currently working in tech um, in um, working as a senior developer advocate over at Snowflake uh, for Streamlit. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much for being here. I'm looking forward to hearing from you for sure. And I love your background. Um, and finally, I'm pleased to introduce our next speaker, Christine. Christine has an experience with AI research development with a wealth of experience in developing and deploying machine learning and AI models. And she's also Shakira's head of engineering. 
also now enabling AI teams to go from ideation to production super fast. Uh, looking forward to hearing your insights on this topic. How are you, Christine? I'm good. Thanks, Sabrina. Um, thanks for having me. So, um, yeah, like Sabrina was saying, my background is mostly in computer science and machine learning. Um, and most of my work previously was around machine learning and applied uh, research. Um, these days, I've been leading engineering for a platform and doing more of the DevOps side of things, but uh, I can definitely see both of them are very interesting. So excited to hear with everyone else's opinion as well. Amazing. Yeah, excited to have you all here. Paul was having some issues with uh, hearing us. Can you hear us now, Paul? Um, can you? Uh, we can't hear you. I'm not sure if that's um, a problem in this side, but yeah. Let's get in deep into the questions. I'm helping Paul via DMs right now to, uh, for us to start listening to him. But yeah, a couple of weeks back, we had our first small talk, Big Data Small Talk, right? The name of this uh, Spaces series, where we talked about the challenges of moving data science projects to production. If you've missed that, uh, you can still find it recorded in our Shakuto Twitter account, previous tweets. But just to do a, a quick recap on what we said and get you guys' perspective on this as well, from your experience, how do organizations typically approach the development of data science models and what challenges do they commonly face? There are many common challenges for sure. Who wants to kick off this first question and give us some insights of what those might be? Uh, all right, go ahead, Miki. Stage is yours. Hey, hey, okay, so uh, the top three challenges that, that come to mind in terms of, um, you know, challenges around developing and deploying data science to production. Uh, the first one is the data requirement. So a lot of times with traditional software that was very rules-based, um, and you see this as well with like deep learning models, uh, you, you do need data to, uh, one, be high quality, number two, it needs to be available, and number three, you need to have a retraining loop for your uh, data science models. So that's something that I think tends to trip teams up is a lot of times, especially, and this is the second part, the dichotomy between kind of like what's taught in, uh, you know, courses or boot camps versus like what it looks, what it actually looks like to do like production data science uh, is a lot of times you see the workflows depicted as going uh, a single direction, right? If all, if all things do well, you know, you get your data, you clean it, you develop the model, and then you deploy it, and then you, that's it. And then some people understand that there's this, like fuzzy concept of like monitoring your model, uh, making sure it doesn't kind of spit out like garbage. But uh, for a lot of teams, the retraining loop tends to kind of throw them a little bit because it's not just like, okay, I'm gonna retrain it to on existing data, but it could be, you need to retrain it on fresh data. Um, and then the third part is, is of that data piece is making sure that the statistical properties of your training data set actually match your production data set, right? Um, and this is where people sometimes maybe don't work with their product or business teams to really understand um, the, the domain side, right? Like for example, if they train it on a certain set of like training data, uh, will that actually be uh, applicable to, for example, the future users of that product or feature? So I think that's the first piece. And the second piece uh, that I'm always like very kind of interested in is the interplay between like exploratory work and production work, right? So 
essentially like how do you take a process which has inherent kind of complexity and challenges and then how do you actually codify that in such a way that it is now a robust piece of software that's not going to like run away from you so i would say those are like the two categories of challenges yeah i i totally agree i think the um well actually both of them i've definitely seen this as well the sort of test versus production environment. I find with larger organizations, maybe even smaller ones as well, but especially with the larger organizations, there's sort of this process where um, you test things in an isolated environment and with isolated like data sets, um, just because like you don't really have access to all the data everywhere, right? Um, and then scientists are kind of left to experiment with and, um, and create models in that sort of in that environment. And then when it comes time to actually deploy, um, there's a whole process that generally there's a, there's let's say a DevOps team or some other internal team that brings you through, but you've already lost some of the knowledge there because um, well, the scientists were doing their thing in their, their own sort of space. Um, and then someone else comes in from the outside, not understanding the model. And then the scientists also don't really understand maybe um, how all the other larger systems play together nicely. So it, it tends to be quite a long process, even though like most of the actual data science work was done. Let's like, let's disregard or not, let's not even think about the whole like test versus um, train like data differences or distribution differences to begin with, right? It's just environment wise, it's like developing in isolation and then bringing it to production becomes a much longer process than necessary. And then, of course, the exploratory work versus production work, I think, sometimes maybe because of that gap between or maybe because of that difficulty bringing some of the work to production, a lot of it is left in like the exploratory phase where scientists are kind of like playing around in their little playground and then um, very few things end up making it out from there. Uh, so that's definitely one thing that I've found, especially in the, in the larger orgs that I've worked in. Amazing. I think you guys are hitting amazing points here. Um, anyone wants to add anything else? Um, the question here is how do organizations typically approach the deployments of data science models and what challenges they commonly face? Um, any more insights on this um, one? I'd I like to share some um, points. Yeah, so like um, like in, in academia, um, in particularly like um, in, in the field of bioinformatics, um, when, when, when we're building machine learning models on data samples, one of the primary concern would be like the applicability domain of the model. Um, like for example, if you're building a model for, um, let's say like a, an Asian population, and then um, you're, you're testing it on another uh, continent, um, then that might not be applicable. So, so the thing is, how can you um, get a representative sample um, that is representative of like the, the target uh, population at which you're going to deploy um, your model. Um, that, that is the first point on the applicability domain. Um, the second point would be sharing data um, and code. I mean, this is like a very big challenge um, for academic researchers, like probably because they, they've probably spent some time um, and, and money um, collecting data and some are reluctant to share. Uh, I often see a lot of tweets um, lately that like some of the um, published papers are saying that data or end code are available upon request. 
And normally when, when we try to reach out to the corresponding author, um, they might be reluctant to share the code or the data and they're planning on their next publication. But it, it's totally understandable. But um, to, to move the field forward, I guess, sharing data and code would allow um, to, uh, to build the, to harness the model in a more, and data in a more effective way um, together instead of like a, a silo approach. Um, the third would be like reproducibility. Um, so yeah, once we share code and data, that would afford reproducibility um, of the model. And the fourth point is very important. And I guess it's one of the um, advantage of some research group is the ability to share publicly their model. Uh, because like most, most of the models that are published are just, you know, like are, are presented as a table, as a figure, um, and they're not interact, they're not interactive. So papers that are sharing the model as an interactive app, like for example, as a Streamlit app, as a Gradio app, or as a Shiny app, uh, would allow the readers to interact using their own data to see whether the model will be um, effective for their own data samples. Yeah, so, so th those are the four points that I'd like to share. Thank you. Yeah, amazing points right there. So Wanda, would you like to add anything here? Okay, uh, just to add on to what, uh, what the other speakers said us. So for me, what I found out to be challenging is like uh, moving um, an ML module from offline, uh, deploying it on, online. So um, there seem to be a difficult challenge, like uh, actually automating that process and also like um, the difference in the, in the metrics, what you have actually, what your module is doing offline and uh, what, what your model starts doing when you deploy it uh, online. And uh, email ops, just like um, DevOps, it's, it's like when, when you have your, your model offline, uh, it sort of like works the way you intended it to, to work, but just like um, how it works on your, on your machine, it's not how it usually works when you put it online. Then. And actually also, um, especially when you are streaming data from multiple sources, you also need your, your module to make uh, different changes in, in the data. Like uh, with big data, uh, it's like you deployed your model yesterday, but whilst you were actually deploying it, uh, you, were, you were actually getting a lots and lots of data, new, new, new data um, that you also need to, uh, to incorporate into, into your model. Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, regarding the yeah how how organizations basically go from from development to production, uh, in my opinion, based on uh, what I've seen working with companies, lack of expertise. Because uh, what happened uh, around five years ago, let's say, data scientists look like the all-in-one man in the analytics stack. So data scientists were able to analyze data, uh, pull data, build models. But then companies started to realize that there's still nowadays a huge gap between development environments and production environments. And data scientists are not the best to bridge that gap, right? So what I've seen is a lot of companies, basically once they realize that there's a big gap between developing and, and deploying and managing models, they basically go for all-in-one solutions, which is, for example, I go to Amazon because I already have my, my IT infrastructure there and I take SageMaker, right? So I start using SageMaker all the way. So, uh, or, I mean, I said SageMaker, but you can go also with Google Vertical or whatever 
uh, all in one platform. And, and what I realized is the companies don't really understand the paradigmas or the building blocks, but they get too caught into specific technologies, right? So I think it all starts because first you need, you need a more heterogeneous team to move models from development to production. Basically because machine learning uh, in real world is an MLOps. An MLOps is like a weird monster that combines software engineering, DevOps, plus data, right? So these are systems that is not only deploying them, but more importantly, keep, keeping them healthy. So you can deploy a model once. That's not, that's not hard, actually. But what is hard is to keep the service running, available, and performing as expected, right? And to do that, if you don't have expertise, if you don't build a basic correct architecture, basically you're doomed to fail or you're doomed to spend more time trying to fix your models than actually letting them generate value, which is the opposite, right? The promise of machine learning is basically to automate stuff. But at the end of the day, you spend more time trying to understand and fix things instead of proactively improving the model. So I think it's two things. It's lack of expertise and lack of clear understanding of the paradigm. It's just, it's not technologies. It's about designing principles because these systems are complex. And, and yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's fucking hard. <laughs> okay, uh, that's amazing. Totally agree with you, Paul. And I had some points to mention on this one, but honestly, you guys covered most of it. So I'm just going to jump right to the next question, uh, which is how can organizations overcome these challenges and ensure successful deployment of data science models? Who wants to kick this one off? Okay, I'm just going to have to pick one of you. If <laughs> you don't say anything, um, but Christine, you wanna go go first? Okay, Mickey, save me here. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Um, okay. So, what can organizations do to um, get up and going? Uh, so, so I, I'd say like number one, um, as an or, as an organization, uh, you should kind of understand. Uh, you should understand kind of where you're at in terms of your MLOps maturity. And just be very, very honest with where you're going. So, for example, it's very easy to say don't build for Google and in Amazon scale, right? It's very easy to say that. But if you get below that to like what does um, and there's there's a guy Yakobo who has a concept called reasonable scale MLOps. Um, so people should check that out. But if you get beyond the like Google's and Apple's. Uh, and essentially, like, you can have sort of, like, three different groups at that point, right? You have companies that are very mature, but maybe their main, uh, you know, their main business or revenue was not in tech, right? For example, Walmart would be a very good example. It's a Fortune 500 company, uh, but its main, like, value prop is not in tech. It's in, essentially, it's in e-commerce, right? E a combination of e-commerce and also a brick-and-mortar business, um, another example could be, uh, well, actually, let's, we, can, we can look at Nike, for example. Nike's, like, main value prop was not in tech, but they've adapted, I think, fantastically. Um, they have, like, a very strong, robust data science machine learning org. So some people might want to take a look at that, for example, if they're thinking about what does, like, enterprise MLOps look like. Um, but you also have companies who are, like, startups. They're very small. They're very lean they don't have all the compute resources. Like I, I saw a take on LinkedIn where someone was like, well, why doesn't everyone just use Vertex and SageMaker? Because you practically get all the MLOps stuff for free. It's like, have you seen how much they charge? That is 100% not free. 100% not free, right? 
So first thing is like, be very like honest about where you are as a company in an org about uh, kind of what size and like maturity and resources your, your business can support. Um, and then don't build what the people who are not you are building. Um, the second part that I think is really important is making sure you get your like fundamentals down, your foundational bases uh, before you go into the really, really like, you know, stuff that I would say is a little bit more, um, I don't want to say supplemental, but for example, uh, if you don't have a way to serve your models, uh, serve your model predictions uh, consistently, for example, if you haven't nailed down the, the, the batch or the pre-compute or even like the live service pattern where you have a pre-trained model and you're basically doing API calls against it and then you know they fetch the predictions and all that, if you kind of don't have that nailed down and your company is not relying on streaming, don't try to go for streaming architecture, right? Like get that part nailed down and then you can kind of figure out stuff like if monitoring is like really something that people, you know, that your team needs beyond like application monitoring or other things like that. And then I'd say like the third part is just try simple stuff first and be really like problem oriented. Figure out what is the next like bottleneck in your like production and deployment uh, stack and, and solve that bottleneck. I think a lot of times like there's this sort of desire to just kind of buy stuff or to bring tools into the house before people have kind of like already figured out like, you know, is our current process like seamless? For example, if our data scientists are currently putting everything in Jupyter Notebooks, like how are they getting into containers or whatever, right? And people don't typically want to figure that process out um, when they really should before they start invest before they start investing in like fancy stuff, you know? So I would say those are like the three really important things if you're an org or you're a team that you should like look for. Amazing. Christina, I saw that you opened your mic earlier. Do you want to add something? Yeah, I did. Um, but, but yeah, thanks. I think Mickey covered a lot of the points there. Um, I think in general, I, I, I definitely agree because um, incremental improvement, I would say, is kind of, well, it, it's two things. It's one, yes, knowing where you are as an org so that if, if you've got a very powerful or or very very knowledgeable data science team but they haven't or machine learning team and they haven't really got that um i guess haven't really got that sense of how the rest of the engineering um in the org works it's going to be really hard to bridge that gap so but part of it is knowing like where where are the relative strengths of your team and then incrementally bridging that gap right um and with I think with the larger, with from the other side as well, it's very much about like getting everyone. I mean, I think at this point, machine learning has been around for, for quite a while. And it's just one of those, it's, it's like when I guess databases or like uh, some new tech comes out, like at some point, there's just enough general information about it that it kind of starts bridging the gap. And then of course, more of it comes from, okay, like once we've been incrementally um, gotten some of the easier models deployed and then you kind of like pick up speed along the way, right? But first you've got to lay out that groundwork and then bridge the knowledge gaps that come between the two teams. Um, at the end of the day, there's a lot of new tooling that's coming out here. Um, and I mean, part of why, again, like not to plug Shakuto right now, but like part of why we built the platform was because we wanted to, like we saw this as a challenge. There's so many tools that come from either side of the stack and there isn't really a standard 
sort of machine learning or data science stack. There's kind of a couple workflows that people are looking to do, or most, um, I would say most data science or machine learning teams look to do, but there isn't really a standard tool stack. Um, and part of it is sort of letting people use the tools that they're used to and um, educating others on like how to use those things. What is it actually for? And that also kind of quashes the fears that some in some orgs like there's sort of the fear of not knowing what the model is you can't track it um we don't have to, like there's so many unknowns right but i think um like Mickey was saying sort of like just incremental improvements can sometimes um i mean lead teams in the right direction so the like either um i guess either well actually it's not either but both sides should uh communicate and, and sort of like learn more about uh what it takes and then start off like one model, two model, and then um, start off with the easier ones. And then eventually you can build up a long-standing system and build up your like organizational um, sort of DevOps, uh, sorry, MLOps and machine learning model deployment process, right? But it doesn't come all overnight. I absolutely agree there. And any other speakers want to add something here before I jump to the next question I have for you guys? Um, can I add two additional points? Sure, go ahead. Over to you. Alrighty. Um, yeah, so um, at a high level, I think being clear on the necessary tech stack that are uh, unique to your own organization um, that are necessary or, or that would be used for model deployment and development would be uh, one of the first steps. Um, another is to be clear on the deployment approach because different companies might have different ways of deploying their uh, their models. Um, like for example, in academia, like one one way to deploy models would you know be in a static form as a research article or or a book chapter um, or as a poster. Uh, but nowadays, with you know like the advancements in low code technology, and um, you could build a web app in in a few lines of code. Um, you know, posters are, are becoming dashboard, are becoming interactive models, um, application. Um, another could be, you know, like deploying it as a Jupyter Notebook and sharing it on GitHub. Um, another could be, you know, as I already mentioned, creating web applications that could allow users to interact with the models. Yeah, so, so those are the two points that I'd like to share. Yeah, thank you uh, so much. I think you guys are covering a lot of great stuff here, especially um, since the background differs so much. It's such from um, insiders in the field, right? I, I do like, I do feel like I'm talking to people who actually been there, and obviously you guys been, but actually felt it in your own uh, skin, right? So the next question I have here is um, about tooling. So when choosing the right tools and technologies, um, there are sort of a, like key considerations to keep in mind. And in your experience, what are those key things you should consider when choosing the right tools and technologies to make the deployments of those data science models easier? And why is that? So uh, Christine, you want to kick this one off? All right, um, key considerations for choosing the right tools. Um, I think one of the really important things in the new and emerging sort of data science and machine learning space is um, 
there are a lot of new tools that come out all the time. Uh, I mean, today, there's probably many others that are being launched just today, right? Uh, and a lot of, and, and the, the space is moving quickly, so it totally makes sense. Um, and everyone wants to keep up to speed with the latest, um, or the latest and the best of breed tools in the industry. Um, I think one of the key considerations is sort of who else is, uh, who else kind of knows about that tool or or which other tools that um, that one new tool is compatible with. And that's not always an easy task because a new thing can come out that's great for, as a point solution for your specific task. But if it's very difficult to fit into everything else, that's not to say like you shouldn't use it, right? I think there there is definitely some element of you know exploration versus exploitation in the tooling space. But I, I think one of the considerations for whether for eventually when you're going to deploy is probably like is how compatible is it with everything else if we're going um, or or like how open I guess how not open source but like how much um, activity is there around it like how quickly is it moving and and going towards being compatible with other things and then some of it is just like if you're in a specific project and there's already um, some established set of tools like it is probably it is probably better to pick something that is like compatible with those um but you know it, it's it, i think it's a like there's a lot there's a lot of new stuff coming out and again like things move fast and tooling moves fast i think a good tool um eventually becomes compatible with other things that you're looking to work with um and if it proves to be very good as that one point solution um i'm sure like usually the community also contributes to um like making it useful for everyone right but that's compatibility i would say is definitely one of the main things to consider yeah i'm gonna yeah i mean i'm gonna add a little bit on this i i, I agree with christine i think the main factor here is how does the, the rest of your stack look like right so whatever is not ml you have it already in amazon for example you have um, a team of engineers we have who have solid experience using uh, kubernetes for example then for example kubeflow is a great solution for you if you want to start doing ML, right? Because you leverage the know-how that you have in-house and you leverage technology that you already have in place. So the transition is smooth, right? So Kubeflow is great in this case. But for example, if you are you work in another company uh, with very limited IT expertise uh, regarding deployments, you are not using Kubernetes, so you will never go for Kubeflow. It doesn't matter how many articles you read, how many consultants we had on board telling you that this is the best way to orchestrate pipelines, right? So it all depends on basically how expensive it is for you to transition from where you are now to where you want to get, right? At least initially. Uh, something that I observe in the market right now is that uh, a few years back, uh, the big cloud providers were selling these all-in-one tools, as I said before, the SageMaker or Google Vertica or even Databricks. But what's happening now is that the market is getting, is getting really fragmented. And as Christine said, there are endless tools coming out every month. So the MLOps space is crowded with tools. The thing is, again, these are just tools. What is important is that uh, you understand the paradigms, so basically the architectures behind these tools. So, uh, for example, if you only have, if you mostly have data scientists who are used to using Python, if your integration with these tools requires a lot of cloud service setups, dockers, YAM files, et cetera, et cetera, this is not the best path for you. 
uh, on the other hand, if you start using Python first tools, for example, many of these MLOps tools have uh, Python SDKs, and the integration with them is not uh, at the cloud level, but is at the code level using Python decorators, for example. So this is a very nice transition. And this solution works, for example, for a startup uh, who's growing fast, who wants to uh, ship machine learning models fast, right? This, this same idea, for example, wouldn't be the best one for a bank, right? A bank works with a lot of confidential data. It's really problematic to integrate with a lot of tools that sit in lots of places. So again, uh, to, to sum up, it's about two things. Uh, what the current stack looks like and what's the human expertise you have on board. Absolutely. Uh, another thing also I think is so important is the ease of use and adoption. So I think organizations to, should choose tools and technologies that are easy to for the data science team and other users to quickly use um, and adopt and learn how to use them. Um, this may involve considering you know, factors such as uh, friendly UIs, documentations, a platform that doesn't lock you in, uh, features and capabilities that um, they need to support the data science project and goals and uh, in an easy way overall. And this may involve considering the tool technology um, ability to support uh, specific tasks, techniques, or even to integrate with other tools. Um, and yeah, this is my thoughts here. Anyone else want to add something? So we can move to the next question. Uh, I'd like to add uh, some points here. Um, yeah, like for for selecting the right tools, I think that the, the organization should, you know, like figure out what really matters to them. Um, you know, because it's very tempting to use like the, uh, the latest technology. Um, like for example, in bioinformatics, I mean, if interpretability of the model is important, which it is, um, like for example, chemists or biologists, they would like to know like what, what aspect of a molecule would make them an effective drug. And so for, in order to do that, it is very important to, to, to make the model interpretable and therefore, this would entail using easily interpretable features um, when computing the features. And another could be using an interpretable machine learning algorithm, like for example, using tree-based like granite forest, um, because it allows you know like figuring out the the feature importance and being able to identify those features would then help the biologists or chemists in figuring out and planning their next step, like how, how can they modify the, the molecule in order to make them more effective. Yeah, so um, not using technology just for technology's sake, but for, you know, like creating actual value for the organization. Yeah, I just want to like add on to, I think that a lot of teams, they kind of neglect the adoption and enablement part which to me is is surprising because I also think too that um, there's a little bit of this attitude of like data scientists can't code and they kind of suck uh, from some like, you know, MLOps and MLNG folks. Um, and the the thing is like data scientists are like, it, I'm speaking from like a, the perspective of like, you know, head of MLOps, like uh, data scientists are like my key business stakeholders, right? They are, they are my customers. Uh, so if I 
if I have a large group of them that are not able to use the tooling I put together, if it's a very like painful process, if we start seeing like shadow MLOps teams kind of pop up, um, that's like a sign to some degree that as a as a developer of the tool chain, as a and I consider myself like a platform engineer, as an MLOps engineer, but as a platform engineer, um, as someone who's trying to provide value uh, to that data science team, it means I'm not doing a good job, frankly, right? It's like one of those things where it's like, if the entire classroom of students doesn't get it, like you as a teacher are failing in your ability to kind of explain it and to get them like bought in. And I think that's the piece that like, frankly, I think a lot of MLOps engineers could kind of like sort of just get over themselves a little bit. Like, yes, probably coding standard, standards are not where they need to be. Um, a lot of data scientists come from a, a diverse like set of backgrounds. Uh, Indeed, I think, did this blog post where they showed that data scientists come from a more diverse set of backgrounds than engineers um, by far. So what that means is that they're coming in at different levels of like skill sets. Uh, and so like the answer cannot be, we just need to hire more engineering or software-minded data scientists because there just aren't that many necessarily, right? Um, instead, it should be like, how can we, uh, as like a team or as a, a partner of teams, uh, enable the growth and development and also the, the adoption of whatever tool or tool chain we create? And if that's not being adopted, then we need to like figure out if we want to, like, how do we do the enablement, right? Like, that's something that to me was a little bit surprising just because it's like, if, you, if all your customers are saying it's it's hard to use and, and they don't love it and they start using their own tools, um, you know, why would you not, like, take that feedback and understand that, like, hey, you need to change or else they're going to go shop from someone else, right? I absolutely agree with you there, Miki. I think um, another thing that's also today, I think, mostly, like, in the recession market becoming more and more important is the cost and value of those technologies. And if they like fit the budgets and resources and if they are actually efficient with what they are consuming, right? So this is very good. Now that we've covered uh, some general background questions on the topic of moving data science to production, I'd like to turn to our experts, uh, speakers and ask them some specific questions about their areas of expertise. And I'm gonna start here with Shannon. So Shannon, you have a background in bioinformatics so what are some unique challenges that bioinformaticians face when working with large and complex biological data sets? I'm super interested about this one. Thanks, Sabrina. Um, yeah, so typically in biology, most of the data are, you know, like are uh, rather large. Um, and as a result, they're, they, they, they're described by, you know, high dimensional number of features that could span a couple thousands or, or even more. And therefore it, it becomes a challenge. And one thing is like, you know, like oftentimes the hypothesis might not be clear, you know, because of simply the data or information overload. So sometimes we don't even know what we are looking for. And therefore, you know, like being able to play around with the data, exploring the data, using exploratory data analysis may help potentially to review areas that would be interesting to explore further. And once we, we, we identified that area, then we could dig deeper into there. Um, and then we could, you know, like take the, the entire data set and, you know, like find the subset that would 
be able to help us answer that niche uh, question that we have from our exploring the data. Um, and then another challenge could be, you know, like how do we describe the data samples? What features should we use? Which machine learning algorithms should we use for modeling it? Um, how how will we, you know, like visualize the data? And more or less, it's, it, it then becomes more of an art form um, because, like, you know, like there there's no, you know, like concrete way of doing things, and therefore it really depends on um, the the particular um, training of the uh, researcher or, or also like the, the nature of the data itself. And yeah, I mean, then we become more like a, a data, a data artist. Um, and another could be, you know, like selecting relevant subsets of the data um, for further investigation. And yeah, so I, I guess more or less like kind of like figuring out the, the area that we want to explore and then um applying applying our own knowledge or um expertise in the field to kind of like dabble and um you know like through serendipity we might discover um some unique insights and i think that's that's like one one of the fun part of, of you know like researching and being a data scientist it's uncovering you know like unique linkages or patterns yeah, absolutely. And that's so interesting because bioinformatics is a field that I, I thought about going into myself. And I'm very interested in like all techniques and especially how data science is used there. Um, my next question for you is how do data science techniques, um, for example, machine learning or deep learning is helping bioinformaticians to analyze and interpret this biological data today? And what kind of like results are you guys getting from can you give me some example? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of um, benefits of using machine learning. Um, in recent years, you know, like the, the generative AI, um, we already have, I mean, there, there's like a crazy amount of um, tweets lately about the chat GPT um, in, in terms of like text generation. Um, I think that there was also a scientist on Twitter as well. Um, uh, Professor Andrew White, he's also exploring, you know, like how to use this generative AI to create molecules from scratch. And I think that's a very exciting area um, because, you know, like chemists, um, they do have some biases in creating, synthesizing compounds. And, you know, like the, the creative, the creative aspect of designing a new molecule could be taxing and could be limited and therefore AI could potentially help to expand, you know, like the, the possibilities of the molecular universe. Um, and another, you know, like going back outside of uh, generative AI, going to traditional, more traditional machine learning. I think like one of the fundamental questions to ask when you know, like an analyzing data sets is, you know, like when we're similar to the, the question of choosing the right tool, um, I guess it's, it really boils down to like the interpretability, like in bioinformatics, one of the most important parts, you know, like um, of value for the machine learning model building process is extracting knowledge value from the model. Uh, like for example, 
some of the research that I used to do in academia is to design a drug. And therefore, you know, like one of the fundamental area is to extract which features are contributing to the biological activity. And so in order to do that, we need to interpret the model and therefore um, being able to use interpretable features, you know, like simple, uh, not too complicated, like for example, molecular weight, how heavy the molecule is, what is the composition of the molecule? You know, these are more valuable than per se, um, like creating arbitrary um, features that might give you higher, you know, like model accuracy. But in a way, it's very, it's very confusing to the biologists or chemists to interpret. Like for example, um, if I have a feature called the the molecular distance of F zero one and uh, C02, you know, it, it's very hard to, to make sense of that. But for example, if I say um, the number of hydrogen bond donors, then it becomes more, you know, more clear. Yeah, so it, it's more or less going back to basics and choosing simple interpretable um, approaches that are, you know, like that could actually drive value. But, you know, like the new frontier, I mean, it's also worth exploring as well, you know, like so, so I guess it's more or less kind of like finding the balance between the two. And yeah, and actually one of the listener in the space, Mitchell, uh, is creating some awesome stuff um, in the cancer bioinformatics front. And yeah, yeah, you should definitely check his papers out. Shout out Mitchell. That's amazing. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. I just follow him. Um, this topic fascinates me a lot. Kirsten, you want to add something? Oh, no, I wanted to ask, so Shannon, do you typically go through, so do you typically choose the initial features based on what makes sense to the, like, the business, but in this case, it's, like, the research group, right? Or is it that you take the interpret, sorry, you take the interpretability results and then, and then map those features to something that they understand after? Like, if it's, is it, or is it actually on both ends of it? Uh, yeah, so that, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so like in, 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 in the niche area of developing models for computational drug discovery, uh, there are some sets of features that are interpretable that um, scientists in the area know of, and therefore um, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're usable. Like, for example, using um, established toolkits like RDKit um, to generate molecular features. Um, using paddle descriptor software, you know, like there are um, toolkits that are available for generating interpretable features. Um, that is in terms of computing the feature, you know, like taking a molecule and then converting it into a numerical form, describing it. Um, and then the other front would be to take those features and build a model out of it. And then the models that are built, you know, like kind of like extracting the, the importance of each individual features, because in, in a given model, there could be a molecule could be described by thousands of features and therefore which of the thousand features are important. So um, simple machine learning algorithms like random forest, uh, it, it suits that very well. You know, it, it provides you with the Gini index and you're able to sort them from, you know, like the, the highest uh, relative feature importance. And then from those, uh, scientists could then explore it further. That's cool. 
I haven't even heard of some of these tools. This new stuff comes out every day, or maybe it's not every day. You've been using it for a while. It's amazing. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Next question um, here is to Paul. And Paul, you have an amazing background in reinforcement learning. So I wanted to know, um, uh, what are some common applications of reinforcement learning and what makes it well suited for these tasks? And uh, let me just thank you here because we are in an asynchronous conversation right now. Yeah, yeah so uh, the first thing is that the reinforcement learning is a very flexible framework. So uh, almost any business problem you can think of can be formulated as a reinforcement learning problem. But, and this is the but, the problem is that reinforcement learning uh, training and, and deploying is much more complex than supervised machine learning. So what has happened so far is that reinforcement learning has been the tool to solve problems that were out of reach. Like, for example, in simulated environments, in games, for example, in the game of Go, DeepMind uh, became famous because of their model. Like AlphaGo is able to play this game like no one before. And this is where reinforcement learning coupled with deep learning, what is called deep reinforcement learning is uh, where it takes the edge and where the effort and the complexity in training it and dealing with is worth it. But apart from that, and this is the thing, reinforcement learning does not have until today a lot of, of uh, applicability in many other industries. It has a few, uh, but still really small compared to supervised ML. Having said this, I've seen reinforcement learning being used, for example, in finance for portfolio management, right? Portfolio management is a long-term maximization problem where every day you have a set of assets in your portfolio and you need to decide what do you do with each of them. You keep your position, you sell, you buy, and the goal is not to maximize today's return. Uh, what you want to do, in fact, is maximize, for example, the P&L, profit and loss over a longer period, right? Because uh, short-term rewards are very stochastic, but in the long term, your strategy needs to be smart enough to make you money. So in portfolio management, reinforcement learning is used. In, in another area where I've seen reinforcement learning being used in the real world, I mean outside games, is to personalize uh, games. For example, mobile gaming. It's used in mobile gaming to personalize uh, the user experience. And it's a very clear reinforcement learning problem because at each point in time, uh, the company has a lot of information about each player, right? So what does he or she likes the most? Uh, at what level? Uh, how hard was the last opponent the player uh, played against? And with all that information, which is essentially what we call the state in reinforcement learning, you need to decide what should you do next in terms of recommending, for example, how uh, difficult should be the next opponent in the game? Or should we send an offer with a discount to basically push that person to buy something? So it's basically a, a problem where given the state, we need to decide the action. And this is essentially what reinforcement learning is about, right? It's about finding the right mapping between states and actions to maximize uh, long-term reward. So as I said, reinforcement learning is really appealing, but still it's not, it doesn't have uh, as much traction by far compared to supervised ML, which is in the industry basically dominating. Yeah, for sure. But it's so interesting though, I mean, those use cases. And I think the second question I have for you is what are some challenges that researchers face when working with reinforcement learning 
and how do they usually overcome them? Yeah, as the main challenge behind the, the main challenge that reinforcement learning faces, not the framework, but the algorithms that we use to solve reinforcement learning problems is the lack of data. Because what happens is that uh, reinforcement learning agents, uh, algorithms, models, these are synonyms, are able to learn very complex patterns like maybe a human uh, can do, but they, they need a lot of data. And when I say a lot of data, it's like several magnitudes higher than a human. So for example, we have very powerful models to, again, by DeepMind, to play video games. But when you look at the amount of data they need to train the model, it's colossal, right? So uh, lack of data is the main impediment because in simulated environments, this is not a problem because you can't simulate the data, right? So shortage of data is not something that academics face when they work in simulated environments. But the problem is that what about the real world, right? What about, as I was saying, recommending, uh, doing user recommendations inside a mobile game? What can you do? I mean, you have two options here. You can write a simulation of user behavior, which turns out to be much more complex to build the simulation engine that to solve it. So it's really unfeasible. Or, or the other, uh, what some people do to overcome this, this problem of lack of data is they build a simulation, which is a proxy uh, for the reality. So they try to build a reasonable simulation. They train models on them on inside the simulation. So for example, let's say you have a physics engine that can simulate basically the laws of physics. What you do, if you want to do robotics, you take this uh, simulated environment where you can generate as much data as you can. You can run infinite experiments. And by the way, no one is going to get hurt, right? Because it's like a simulated environment. You can let the reinforcement learning agent learn. And then when you're done learning, uh, you've learned what it's called the optimal policy, right? So what's the optimal way to act? Now, when you need to deploy it into a real robot, which is in the real world, like uh, then you need to fine tune it. Right, because uh, here's the same problem as for supervised ML. When there is a difference between the training data and the inference data, uh, when there is this training serving skew, models do not perform as well as expected. Right. The problem is that in supervised ML, uh, supervised ML models are not so fragile. I mean, they perform worse, but they don't break as catastrophically as reinforcement learning agents do. So bridging the gap between simulated environments and real world is also a challenge and i mean there are thousand ways to thousand ways that were proposed to to overcome this but it's still not a trivial problem so yeah these are the two problems lack of data and then bridging the gap between simulations and real world that's amazing and it's funny because when talking about data i've noticed in these conversations the difference of the production and deployment environments is a pain point that comes up a lot and definitely, um, we have like a lot of ways that people can usually solve them, but also it's something to keep in mind, definitely when across all areas, right? So it's, it's a constant thing. And thank you so much, Paul. Uh, the next questions I have here is for Miki. So Miki, uh, you're a leader in the NLOps field. Uh, so can you provide some examples of best practices for implementing NLOps in organizations? Um, workflow, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, first best practice is, uh, number one, get your serving and deployment uh, component figured out. That That is the first part. 
And the second part is uh, make it work. Don't make it sexy. Like it doesn't have to be this beautiful thing that, you know, you, you write a blog post or white paper about. Um, it just has to work. And I think there is this, you know, okay, so when enterprise companies, right, publish a blog post on here's our very big complicated MLOP system, uh, that's not something to aspire to. The reason they publish that blog post is because the architects have fought so long and hard to get that stuff up and running that they're kind of like, you know, they're, they're, they're patting themselves on the shoulders, going job well done, you survived, you're not dead, you're still alive to fight another day. Um, but that's really what's going on there, right? Just because there's more boxes on the system design review does not mean that is like the right way to construct your MLOps tool chain. So that's the first one thing to get out there, right? Um, I'd say the second part also is uh, never neglect the dev to prod uh, pipeline. Specifically, that is like, like really getting those as close together as possible is incredibly important. Um, and I would also say third, uh, and this is something that like, you know, my team did over at MailChimp, where I was on the uh, MLOps platform there. Um, you know, and then MailChimp was acquired by Intuit for $12 billion and all that other stuff. Uh, but uh, consider moving away from local development. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? I'm not saying get rid of Jupyter Notebooks. What I'm saying is that, you know, when we try to template a lot of our operations, um, what we did was, for a long time, we had supported like this cookie cutter project templating tool, but it required uh, local development on the Intel Mac, right? Um, so of course, when the uh, new M1s were rolled out, we were not properly prepared and like everything broke. Um, you know, even though we, we were developing stuff in containers and all other stuff, right? So um, for us, we, you know, took that experience and went, you know what, what if we went to as cloud native development as possible? What if we already got started with the development environment up and running and like matching as close as possible to the production requirements, right? So that was like our mandate was just close that gap as much as possible. If you do that, I mean, and figure out what that looks like for your team or org, that already provides a huge amount of value because I firmly believe that a huge value that data scientists bring is uh, number one, the product and, and domain knowledge specifically. Um, but second part is the creativity and the uh, push to always try something new. Um, you know, those are something that the data scientists around me that were, you know, senior data scientists or staff, data scientists, like I was amazed and I loved working with them because of what they were able to produce. And you can't have innovation in a stifling environment, you know? So those are some kind of practices or, or things I would uh, ask organizations or teams to really kind of consider. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other question I have for you is in your experience, uh, what are some common pitfalls organizations should, should avoid when they're implementing MLOps for data science projects? Uh, I would say number one is, um, and this is like a perspective I really try to drive home into folks because uh, projects and tutorials and even like the courses that are out there, right? They kind of approach, they're trying to teach a workflow or tool chain. Uh, but I think there's a difference between like the platform approach so there's this concept called uh, uh, cattle not pets, 
the idea is, um, you know, like when I was working as a data scientist, right, every single model I created was like handcrafted. I put blood, sweat, and tears into, you know, especially in the feature engineering phase, you know, it was like my baby. And uh, that's just not the way like platform engineers like look at models, right? And this saying comes from the fact that you, you're more focused on the system of delivering models. So for example, uh, you're not creating a new MLflow server instance every single time you run a project, right? You want an MLflow instance on a shared instance where data scientists can like use it and collaborate and interact with each other. Uh, same thing with like a feature store, for example. The whole point, the whole point of some of these tools is to enable like collaboration between data scientists. Uh, and that's also partially why the data scientists do not have to set those up. It's really hard in a startup environment. You know, like you just wear multiple hats, right? You can't get away with it. But in companies that are not like startups, uh, where you do have that specialization, um, the day, like the data science should not be building the plane while they're flying it. And that's kind of what, what is going on, right? Or they should not be building the bus as they're driving it. Um, instead that should be the platform folks and all that. Uh, the second kind of like anti-practice I see is, uh, a lot of folks saying that MLOps is the same as DevOps. Uh, I a hundred percent do not believe it is. Uh, what I mean by that, I think MLOps is like a, an application of DevOps principles to machine learning products. But there are things that are actually like very quite different. And even though it's like a small number of differences, those differences are incredibly significant to how you would adapt your tool chain, right? Um, because in traditional software, you don't have any need for number one, like experiment tracking beyond like A-B testing, right? You're not, you have no need to test or to test store your weights and by like your, your parameters, right? Um, same with like a feature store. Um, if you're building vanilla software, you just typically want a data warehouse that, uh, or database that can support, uh, like, you know, high reads, right? Um, but it, with a feature store or serving features with like machine learning models, uh, it really is about the collaboration aspect. It's about um, being able to, for data scientists to be able to like, once they've created features, once they've, once they've documented it, uh, you know, once they've done all this hard work of cleaning it and all that jazz, of being able to like very quickly fetch it, right? So I think that's like the weird sort of dichotomy is that like MLOps is very complicated. So sometimes to teach the principles, you need to approach it from like a project workflow basis. But if you're building to scale 10 models, a hundred models, you know, a thousand models, um, the perspective and the requirements are, are very, very different. You, you want things that are robust and can work. You want things that people can use. Um, you also don't, as much as possible, you don't want to be like reinventing the wheel every time. So a question that I would kind of pose to people to think about is um, if you're trying to figure out like what to work on in a team or what to build, think about the areas where Number one, an ML, a data scientist is uniquely equipped to add value. And then think of the areas where someone at, with an engineering skill set is uni uniquely qualified to add value. One person that said, well, is one area to do ops tasks. And I would argue that for most ML ops engineers, your goal should be to automate yourself out of the workflow as much as possible. Um, 
So like, for example, you should be automatically including like, mon- if you're going to include monitoring, you, it should be automatically included. If you're going to be doing um, data validation, you know, there should be a very easy way to do that, like built into the project from the get-go, right? So those are, are things to think about. You do kind of have to get out of your, you have to get out of the way of your ego as like an MLOps engineer, as like a data engineer, uh, you name it, as a, as a tool developer, you have to just kind of be okay with the fact that one day you've built something so cool that you're just not going to be there anymore. And then you can move on to like helping people solve other problems, right? I completely agree with that, uh, with what you said there, Mikian. I really um, think it's funny because I recently read an article that says uh, data scientist is the sexiest job of the 21st century. <laughs> and probably it has to do with a lot of some stuff that you mentioned here too. Um, I know that Shannon has to go soon, so I'll get, open the space for him to say goodbye to everyone and do a quick plug. So thank you so much for being here, Shannon. Yeah, thanks, Sabrina. Yeah, so yeah, thank, thanks for organizing this awesome Twitter space and glad to chat with all of you here today. Yeah, so um, hope to stay for more, but uh, unfortunately, uh, gotta go. Uh, everyone, don't forget to follow Shannon on their social media, Twitter, YouTube. Follow everyone here on the panel. They're amazing uh, content creators. Paul had to go as well, pick up his kid. Um, so also follow him. Don't forget. And yeah, let's uh, keep going. So thank you so much for your insights in this ML ops side of things. Mickey, I do agree a lot with everything that you're saying. And it's great to see your perspective on those things as well. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I, I do have questions uh, also for Tawanda and Christine. Uh, let's start here with Tawanda. So you've been working with big data for a while. I wanted to know what are some common challenges organizations face when working with big data and how do they usually overcome those challenges specifically for big data? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Sabrina. Uh, so from what I've seen, um... Uh, the challenge is all depends on with, uh, with the with the industry or sector, and sometimes they even drill down to the uh, the country. So sometimes what I've seen uh, the problem that is mostly over overlooked is, uh, for example, most of the companies actually do have big data, but they lack an understanding of uh, what uh, what is it big data and how 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 they can benefit from from big data. For example, they, they are not aware of, um, especially the, the storage, um, how to process the data, the importance of it, and uh, multiple sources of, uh, of, of big data. So uh, what I think um, is the best solution to this is uh, actually uh, initiatives like this one, maybe um, spaces um, or some seminars, uh, workshop, hire some, some technical People with uh, with the know on on how best they can help um, certain companies, depending with the, with the industry they're in, how how they can benefit from from the data that they are they are sitting on. And uh, what I've seen, most companies tend to believe that maybe big data is for for uh, huge organizations, maybe the Facebook, the Google, or other other big organizations, but there are tools out there that can actually help uh, even the, the small startup um, 
with big data analytics. Uh, for example, uh, it, it can actually help you. Uh, we have a queue link, uh, which, which you can also use for your big data analytics and even ML models. And uh, also considering that um, even um, most tools for data analytics, they are, they are open source. So you just need uh, maybe to train, to train your, 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 your engineers on how to use these tools. And um, the other issue is uh, uh, the, the, the data growth. So um, we use also associated with other forms of um, mainly data, that is um, how to handle the velocity, the volume, uh, the variety, and the veracity of that. So what I've seen is that, uh, uh, especially with the speed at which the data is, um, is generated mostly, most organizations uh, get overwhelmed. And uh, in this case, uh, they, they, they usually need uh, the education on how, which best tools uh, they can use for, for this. For example, we have um, streaming tools out there, for example, Apache Kafka, and um, if some even use uh, what to call Rabbit, Rabbit MQ, which are the tools that we can actually use to solve this issue of uh, data streaming at, uh, at high levels. And we also have actually the, the storage issue, especially uh, considering that uh, the volumes of data, they tend to be very huge. And uh, with this maybe, what, what I think is, uh, we actually need to incorporate uh, compression, compression techniques, maybe Snappy, GZIP or something like that, so that uh, we save a lot of space, especially when we want to store the data. And um, the other issue is actually, when it comes to translating the data from, let's say, uh, data lakes to, to a data warehouse where we have the data maybe um, structured, um, organizations usually have challenges. Um, in this case, uh, I think it's also needed for, 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 to, for training engineers on how to, on how to deal with, with this issue. So I, I think uh, those are most common challenges that affect both usually uh, large organizations and, and startups. Over to you. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Uh, those are definitely things that uh, we can notice is super complicated. And I also wanted to know if you could provide some examples that now that we know some challenges, but how actually big data has been used to drive business value and improve decision making um, in like your experience, what have you been working on that was actually used for this? Okay. Um, so for, for that, maybe what I would do is uh, I'll try to, to, to use uh, some examples that maybe most, most of us can, can relate to, uh, maybe how big data can, can, be, can improve uh, the business values. For example, I think we, we have um, organizations like, uh, let's say, Netflix and uh, Spotify. Um, they, they, mean, um, they, they increase uh, their business value by mainly getting us, keeping us hooked, uh, especially their recommendation system. For example, um, I like Spotify. It's the system that I use on a day-to-day day -day basis, even maybe sometimes at night when I forgot to switch off, to turn it off. So it's like uh, they actually know what, 
what I will be listening to, they know what I like based on my listening and what I might actually like, which saves me a lot of time, which I think is uh, it's, it's very good. And I, I don't even need to check if my favorite artist has got a new single or what I just need to. I'll, I'll just find that the music in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the playlist according to what I've been listening to. And also um, what I've seen, the, the other importance of big data that I've seen is, uh, for example, I'm currently attending to the Global Digital Health Forum which, um, the online, which is currently being held on. So what I've seen is uh, we, we have seen some, some other companies that have, that have actually managed to come up with uh, diagnostic tools, especially for, for chronic diseases. Uh, out there, we have uh, some companies like Path AI, Prenom, and I think uh, this is a good use of big data to be able to, to actually diagnose patients on different um, diseases based on, on big data. And uh, also, uh, I, I think right now everyone is talking about uh, chat GPT. It's also a good example of how what we can do with uh, with big data. Yeah, absolutely. I wish we had uh, some more time to talk about ChatGPT because it's been such a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, what are are you using ChatGPT now, and and if so, which um like field are you applying it to? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I, I I tried it. I think um, it was on Monday, so I I, I got to use the VPN. Unfortunately, it's actually blocked in my in my country, so I. <laughs> I have no access to it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And I have been using I think I have been using it for the past couple of days. It's just blown my mind. <laughs> of course, just a demo, but um, it definitely is changing people's perspective a lot and on a lot of topics we can see, right? So anyway, uh, let's do a space and just talk about that. We, we do have a lot to say. Um, and the next questions I have here is for Christine. Unfortunately, Miki also had to drop. We are going a lot over time here because there's a lot of cool, interesting stuff to be said around this topic. But Christine, uh, you're an AI research developer. Uh, used to be, now you're head of engineering. And now you're building this platform, right, to ease up data scientists workflow. Uh, so I know you have a unique perspective on the challenges and opportunities of deploying data science models. So um, can you tell us more about your experience with deploying AI and machine learning in production? And did the idea behind Chikuru uh, start to solve these challenges that you used to face as a data scientist or AI researcher? Like, okay, I can't take this anymore. I'll just create a tool to deal with this myself since there's no better option out there. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty much it was pretty much that. Um, so my co-founders and I have been building models and um, well, a mixture of like models and both like even just the prep and uh, finding the correct data and like data pro like as big data processing you can call it um, since like before yeah in the bank days for various small teams like in in consulting and startups as well, but. Um, yeah, so I think in, in terms of deploying, it de it really depends for like large teams. Um, I would say the largest, one of the main things that uh, you'd see is there's many processes around deploying. And because there's so many teams, there's often a communication gap. So all the challenges that we talked about earlier are definitely still relevant here. Um, and then, whereas for smaller teams, usually I would say it's around resourcing, um, as in there aren't too many 
let's say small teams that have both a very strong um, like data science machine learning team as well as like a full fledged like dedicated ML ops um, team just to like just to help them deploy stuff or help us in the past deploy stuff. Um, and also like the DevOps team and the rest of the infrastructure team. So, I mean, it usually for the smaller teams or smaller companies, it's just a matter of resourcing. So very often, like you would see, there's just not enough um, to go around and everyone's, when they're kind of isolated in their own uh, work, it becomes a little bit more difficult. Uh, but yeah, the idea behind Shikuro is really to solve all these challenges and also a lot of the other ones that everyone um, here had been bringing up, right? So the environment we know is one, um, working with, well, I guess working with and and uh, being able to deploy models and then also being able to explain, monitor and all those pieces. Um, I think one of the one of the ideas behind Shakuto was definitely to empower data scientists themselves to be able to bring some of that work that they've been doing into production, so that there's less of a, well, there's less of a bottleneck on ML ops or based on ML ops capacity or based on like uh, configuration and and or environment configuration mismatches, and then you can really just focus on the actual modeling, the actual well, monitoring and then and the retraining, right? But the idea is the pipeline is there, or rather the the, the groundwork is there, um, and then scientists can focus on uh, the thing that they're really good at, and I'm sure they're very passionate about. Yeah, that's so interesting. I remember in the last spaces we did, um, the first one from Big Data Small Talk, we talked about the challenges of deploying those models to production. And it's so funny, because the challenges kept uh, coming up, and the speakers were mentioning them, and those are all challenges I know uh, the Shikuro platform is used uh, to solve, right? So this is very nice how this was actually um, made of thinking about those examples and actually feeling the, the pain points of those people. And uh, the next question I wanted to ask you is uh, to share some examples of how Shikuro customers are solving their challenges and actually um, moving data science to production inside the platform. Yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, I can speak for Shakudo and I'll just also just like more generally, um, I think teams generally use like an MLOps or there's an MLOps team that kind of goes through this. Um, but like I said, it's often very hard to hire and just it's not immediately accessible. Like so the fangs of the world, of course, like have a lot of human or humans, but I'll just have a lot of um, resources which, and, and in terms of people and, and like, I guess in terms of uh, people capacity to uh, apply to these things, but often it's not available for much smaller teams or even teams that are, I would say, not less sophisticated, but less far down in their, uh, let's say data science and machine learning um, production, uh, I guess capacity, or they're less uh, mature in, in that whole like life cycle. So really what we aim to do is a lot of this is actually quite templated in the sense that there's a lot of workflows that um, I think uh, Mickey was also talking about earlier. Like there's, there's just a, there's like sort of a template that you need to lay out first before you even think about like very fancy things. Right. So if you've got a very fancy data science team and a very mature uh, DevOps team, but like really no way, but there's like a bottleneck in between. Um, and what I was saying earlier too, I think part of it is just like, let's lay out, a platform that can get people to deploy their work, and um, that includes things like uh, you know ETL, distributed uh, data processing, and then model retraining and serving, um, and then in like batch inference and things like this. Um, 
also being able to like schedule things to to run so for example schedule you know you have a streaming data source let's schedule something to like process that and put it downstream um in a different like bucket or whatever landing zone you want right like some things like this we are are necessary for data work um and are necessary for data science work sorry but it's just that like the, the the pipelines of them have to be laid out first and so our goal is to first get that let's get get the team up and running and then they can focus on okay like now that we've actually got a model in production let's like improve on that and then redeploy and because that whole ci like the whole I guess data science to production pipeline is already laid out. You can then focus more on the meat of it or from the data science point of view, like the meat of it maybe, which is uh, what's the actual code that's running? Um, how do I make my model like run faster or, or give better like results, right? So be, you have to be able to first like detect these things and monitor it for you to, and also be able to deploy quickly. Um, like that whole machinery has to exist first. Um, so that's really what we're aiming to do. Uh, yeah, again, I, I think, uh, and the, the second part is letting people use the tools that they like. So like we mentioned, I mean, I think everyone is kind of alluding to this fact earlier, which is like, if you're, if you're locking customers or not customers, well, customers, but even within an org, if you're locking the teams that are using your product into a very specific framework that has like five or six tools, your next like N plus one tool that comes in is going to have to be compatible with all the rest. Like it, it's going to be a it's going to be a huge effort to add in new things. And also you're locking people into some framework that was, I mean, some framework that you've created, but if the, if the actual users don't love using those tools, um, you're really limiting yourself, I think, as an organization on like the talent that you can acquire and how quickly you can move. Uh, so I definitely think letting people work with the tools that they like and being that compatibility layer is something that we really um, aim for in in the platform. And, and uh, I think a lot of our customers have really enjoyed being able to just like stick with the tools that they like, right? Data scientists, again, are like, it's not that they suck and they don't know how to code. It's like everyone has, everyone, everyone is actually really good. Um, and they have some tools that they would like to use. So let's get those to production first um, and, or, or like let them use them. Uh, and then in the future, when there's new tools that come up, we make it compatible with the rest of the stack so that, uh, I mean, as the space is changing, the teams can also evolve with the space. People can work with things that they like, and then, uh, and then you can always improve from there. Yeah, I completely agree with you, and that's a great overview of like the freedom that you can get with the platform. That usually, not only data scientists but all kinds of developers, we we don't like to be locked into one place and one way to doing things or having to use a specific language or a specific framework that's super uh, upsetting when you're creating new tools, especially if you're trying to innovate, right? And we can see that actually happening a lot um, in organizations, especially bigger organizations, but it's great to have that option to um, be flexible with your workflow and with what you're working with. And yeah, we're going way over time here. Amazing lineup of speakers. Um, make sure you follow everyone here that uh, we mentioned. A few speakers already left, but we already have Tawanda and Christine. You guys want to do a quick uh, announcement before we wrap everything up? I think I've plugged enough. Maybe, Tawanda, you can share what cool things you're doing. 
All right, I, I do want to do a plug-in here. Uh, Oh, go ahead, okay. I think, uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, I don't have much to say. Yeah, make sure you follow him. If you, I mean, he has the best content uh, for funny posts and memes around data science, but also development in general. So uh, I'm sure, like, you want to follow him and just lighten up for your timeline. Um, <laughs> uh, they won't believe you. Um, I wasn't that funny today. <laughs> <think you're> <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to all speakers and thank you for the audience.